right, well, as you know, hopefully we're going through the whole book of the Gospel of Luke. And today, we are looking at the second chapter, uh, the first 21 verses. My guess is this is going to be familiar to most of you. And here's how Luke begins. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. After eight days had passed... It was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray for your presence in the midst of this well-known story. So we pray that you would help us to hear it again, and that it might enliven our hearts that it might give us a sense of clarity about who you are, that we might then be changed and challenged. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, i got to tell you, of course, it's a little bit strange talking about this particular passage exactly three months before Christmas. But that said, my wife told me this week that when she was at Costco, she saw that they were already beginning to set up things for Christmas. Which makes me think that we Christians should just do this little quiet mutiny and we should actually just celebrate Christmas Eve next Friday and just mess up the whole system, right? Um, So we're not going to do that. So it is weird, though, to kind of think through. Yeah, the kids are ready to go ahead and move Christmas up. Yeah. Uh, To think through 
this story, and, and perhaps a little bit slower, a little bit deeper way than we normally can on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So the story begins, obviously, very much, uh, Luke starts it very much rooted in history. It does not start by saying, you know, in a galaxy, you know, far, far away or once upon a time. No, no, no. It's rooted in actual history that when Caesar Augustus was the leader, that there was a registration or a census that was called. Now, uh, there's lots of debate about exactly when this is, what's the year. There's some confusion about when their actual registration was. And, and so there's lots of ink that is spilled about exact date. And it's likely, of course, that it's not on December 25th and, you know, all those sorts of things. But, but there's all this kind of, you know, debate about it. But what most scholars agree, what's most significant for Luke, is not really to point to one specific date as much as to help us to understand that from the very beginning, the way in which Jesus was born was under or in the shadow of the massive, the powerful Roman Empire and the almost godlike stature of Caesar Augustus. Caesar had power and he had might and he had a great ability to do a lot of things militarily, economically, spiritually. And we see that, of course, by the fact that he's calling forth this great registration, this great census for all the known world, really, for the whole Roman Empire. And the reason why he's doing this, of course, is not so that he can just, you know, count and know, oh, great, look how big we are, we have this many people. No, it's so that he could tax the people. And of course, if you know much about that time, you know that these taxes were not usually just small amounts. And in fact, the taxes were always this reminder, this heavy reminder to the people that they had been conquered, that they were subservient, that they were servants, almost slave to the mighty Roman Empire. The Romans loved to remind the people who they had conquered, including, of course, the Jewish people. And a lot of times, whenever there were these big censuses or registrations, there were always these revolts. In fact, in 6 AD, uh, we're told that there was a, a revolt by Judah the Galilean, uh, and they were trying to revolt against this kind of registration, against taxes. And of course, whatever happened, whenever you had a revolt, right? I mean, we see this uh, even, even now in some sense, of course, uh, going on in Russia when you have these protests. Then the empire comes in, and they just do everything they can, oftentimes here in this context, to violently, uh, if need be, overthrow the revolts. And so there is this constant kind of sense of, uh, of unease and tension. And it's probably hard for most of us to, to really uh, understand what it would have been like, but we at least need to get a sense of this is how Jesus was born. He was born in the context, right, of massive amounts of poverty and oppression and where there was constant upheaval and where you never knew for sure what Romans were going to do or what the rebellious uh, Jewish uh, faction was going to do. And in the midst of that, this is how Jesus was born. And so we're told that Joseph went to, the, uh, to Bethlehem, which is where he was family was from, to the city of David. And of course, when we hear that city of David, we should be uh, reminded again, remember we went all the way through David, of course, uh, last year, and we learned a lot about David. But you know that this is a sense of royalty. And so already, right, he's placing, Luke is placing Jesus in the context of, of royalty, right? So here he is, uh, uh, royalty, and Joseph is going to Bethlehem and all the travails of having to do that. 
And it's when he's there that Jesus is born, right? He's born in a manger, um, and then there are bands of cloth that are placed on him. Now, what are those bands of cloth? I know that you guys have always wondered that, right? No one's ever wondered it, apparently. I wondered it. And and apparently it's a a sense of kind of mothering and nurturing, but it was also oftentimes there to help make sure uh, that their limbs grew straight, uh, which I got to be honest with you, makes no sense to me unless they're doing that until they're like 15 years old. Um, But I decided after doing some research that I just didn't care anymore. And so, but just so that you know, that was kind of a sense of why they placed that on there. And so there they are. They have these bands of cloth. And now why were they there? They were there, we are told, because they're was no place for him in the end. Now, you are probably aware of this, but there's a lot of debate about exactly what that means. Uh, we have this sense, right? I mean, whenever I was uh, growing up, we've talked about this, you know, we oftentimes uh, at my church, we do a living nativity scene, and, and maybe you did these things when you were growing up, and uh, there were like, uh, oftentimes ours were like this kind of makeshift lean-to that was put up, and uh, we would either kind of borrow animals or rent them, uh, and you'd have them, and then, you know, a bunch of little snotty kids like myself, you know, would have on these oversized robes and some stick that we had, and we all thought it was going to be exciting, and then you were just kind of standing there, and usually you had like an angel kind of precariously standing on top of the roof that you're like, this 50-50 odds, that angel's not surviving a fall here, and so it's just, it was all this kind of sense, right, and it's supposed to represent a stable, which is oftentimes how we were raised, but the odds are pretty good that it didn't look like that. Uh, You know, Pastor Stan in the Scott and Stan video makes a great point uh, this week. If you watch that, you'll know this, that that later on in Luke, the the story of the Good Samaritan, you remember that story? And the story of the Good Samaritan, um, um, we're told that he put the victim up in an inn as well. Um, And that's a completely different word in Greek. And it's actually probably the word that really means kind of an inn, some place where people would stay as guests and then you would pay them to do that. But actually this word, ketaloma, probably means more of the upper room in in a peasant house. And if, if you've gone with ZPC over the last few years to Israel, we visit uh, one of these kind of houses. And you walk in, and, and typically there's kind of a little upstairs, which is just one room, which is where the family gathers. It's where they eat, and it's where they all sleep in one room, right? So the next time your children or whomever are complaining that the house is too small, just, you know, take them into a closet and say, we could all live here. Uh, maybe do that one night. And it's really helpful for kids. And so, so we do, so they have this one little space. And then downstairs... Um, downstairs, uh, and by stairs, this is not like a normal kind of two-story, please understand, but just down a couple steps is where the animals would be kept, right? And so, uh, because they would want to come inside, because these were the livelihood for many people, and they didn't want them just outside where they might be stolen or taken for, for whatever reason. And so, so it is likely, and in fact, it's even likely that, that, that perhaps they're staying at a house of family, if you will. There's even one commentator who suggested that Joseph may have actually had a house there because there was a tax loophole, if you had a house in a place like Bethlehem. Now, I'm fairly convinced it was a financial planner who wrote that commentary. That seems really kind of far-fetched to me, but but one way or the other, what we should know is it's likely kind of a house, because as Ken Bailey says, Ken Bailey's big into to, uh, the Middle East hospitality, right? And they likely wouldn't have just said, hey, sorry, you're out. That would not have gone well in the Middle East at that time, or even now, really. And so so it's probably that they're downstairs where the, uh, where the animals typically were. Now, let me be clear. This is not to try to paint a picture that where he was born was kind of like, you know, the IU North Maternity Ward or St. V's. It was nothing like that. Uh, but, but to go back to the sense that it was probably very, very ordinary 
as we've said the last couple of weeks, that this is where God so often works in very ordinary ways, but certainly in a place of great poverty, in a place of oppression. But this is kind of where exactly it is likely that Jesus was born in this kind of setting. And in the midst of that, of course, all of a sudden then the the scene changes and we're out in the fields, right? And we're out with a bunch of shepherds. Now, again, there's a lot of debate on shepherds. Um, you know, some people think that shepherds were kind of the down and out, that they were despised, you know, and, and there is a sense that they weren't even allowed, some would say, uh, to witness in courts. Other people say, no, they're not that bad. That wasn't how they were looked upon. They were just kind of really ordinary people. And you can, again, get into all those debates. I'm not all that interested in that. But I do like what Robert Tannehill said about the shepherds, which is that he says shepherds, on the one hand, are very earthy. Obviously, right? They're out in the fields oftentimes with shepherds or with sheep, I should say. So they would have felt very much at home around a a trough, around a manger and in the midst of animals. They would have felt very much at home. But at the same time, as you probably know, shepherds are oftentimes an image in Scripture for something kingly or even for God. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so actually, it's this fascinating sense that you have these very earthy, but also kind of almost king-like or lord-like shepherds, which are this reflection of Jesus, who is also, of course, fully human, as we said last week, fully human, but also then fully divine. And these shepherds are out there minding their own business, doing very ordinary things, when all of a sudden, the angels appear. And of course, how do the angels always start? Do not be afraid, right? Because angels are almost always very scary, it seems to people. And they say, do not be afraid. And then they continue with this. And they say, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. Scott Hosey points out that in the the Greek, those two words are in the dative, to you, which means it's a highly personal word. To you is born this day. This day in the city of David. It could easily, Luke could easily have said that the angels just said, hey, there is a Savior born this day. But no, it says to you. It's this remarkably personal language. And I want to suggest that there is a massive difference between just being leaving that, that Jesus was born and believing that Jesus was born for you. And as I was thinking about this um, I was reminded of the fact that I told my kids that we were never going to get a dog. Never. After the last one died uh, uh, two or three years ago, I said, no more. And they were dying to get a dog, and I kept saying, no. And about a week ago, my father called to say, hey, I'm here with a bunch of puppies. We're going to get a couple. Do you want one? And I said, let me check with Megan, knowing that Megan would say no. And she said, yes. So I thought, okay, this is a nightmare. And it is. I'm very tired today. You want to know why? Because we got a dog. And so yesterday, 
We went. We told my kids. Uh, we met my dad in Missouri. We told him that he had gotten two new dogs, but that we were, because we were already there for this dance thing, that we were going to go and we were going we to see these two puppies. Do they want to go see them? And they said, yes, of course. And so we did. And so when they first saw them, they just thought that these were my father's dogs. And let's watch now as uh, we see how this unfolds. What do you think? you like them? You like them, huh? Nice. Could you not? Hey, girls. What if we told you that one of these is for you? Yeah, right. <laughs> you get to take one of those home. Wait, actually. You're taking. Tony's got to We get to take one of them. Seriously? <laughs> wait, wait, I'm yep. No. You gotta pick. You <laughs> promise? You get yep. to pick one. We get to you take one of them. I'm not lying. <laughs> oh, the no, dogs are going to okay. <laughs> Too much noise, too much noise. Thank you! Uh, huh? Yeah, but we can, uh, maybe mom. Mom might have to choose. Yeah. Hang on. Is that on now? Okay. So one of the things, uh, one, there's two things I want to talk about with this. One is this, is that they love these dogs, right? They were like, cute, like, this is great, right? But when they learned that these were for you, that one of them was for you, right? All of a sudden, and you could see in my oldest face, like all of a sudden, the heart got engaged. This was a whole different thing, right? So I, I love that fact, of it, right, which I kind of expected. And they ended up getting kind of teary and they couldn't believe it. And this is, oh my goodness, this was the greatest thing, right? But I also love, and maybe you heard, especially the youngest one who looked at me and said, yeah, right. And then said, and then said you're lying. Um, and, and so, uh, which probably says something more about my parenting than anything else. But what I also really like about that is I think that there are probably quite a few of us who oftentimes we think, oh, great, the Lord's been born. But when, when, when it's like, no, no, Jesus was born for you specifically. It is oftentimes hard for us to really believe that Jesus has been born for me. Why? Because we know our own brokenness. We know our own sin. We think, no, surely not, because I know all these. No, no, no. And I love this because angel is saying to these shepherds, right, maybe they were despised, but they were certainly ordinary. There was nothing special. And the angels don't just say that the Lord has been born. It says, it says no, no, unto you is born. Unto you is born this day. So that if you hear nothing else the rest of this day, I want you to know this, that Jesus was born for you, no matter what, he was born for you. So you have this great excitement all of a sudden that begins to be built up with these shepherds, right? Because now they say, oh my goodness, he was born for us, right? And so I love how it kind of continues on. And, and the way that it reads in the scripture is like, you know, they said to one another, let us go in. But probably it more act, act, or accurately says, they kept saying to one another, let's go. You know, this is how our, again, our kids are, uh, you know, whenever they're excited about something, they don't just say, hey, uh, you know, can we go? No, no, no. They're like, come on, let's go. Let's do this. We're excited. Excited. So there's this great excitement that the shepherds have that they want to go and see this thing that has been told to them, it says. Again, that dative, that person.
personal to them. And so they run off to go see, and they're amazed. The people who hear are amazed, and I'm sure that they're amazed partly because of the story, but I'm sure they're also just amazed because the shepherds have this remarkable joy and excitement over the fact that Jesus has been born and been born to and for them. Mary, we're told at this point, she does two different things. One is she treasures these things. And so there's this very much emotional part of Mary that she's kind of treasuring that. That's what this kind of connotes, if you will. But then also there is a sense that she ponders them. And I love that Tim Keller says this is more of an intellectual pondering. And it goes back again to what we've talked about, which is that the sense that our faith is something that we're always kind of wrestling with, most of us, right? And, and there's this sense of it kind of saying, okay, I'm going to take this that the shepherd said, and I remember what the angel, I'm pretty sure it was an angel, what the angel said to me, and, and what, what, what Elizabeth said to me, as we talked about last week, and there's this constant kind of connection that we do in our faith. There's an intellectual aspect of our faith that I think is a beautiful thing. This is exactly what Mary's doing here. She both has this emotional part of her faith, but certainly an intellectual part of her faith as well. So this is Luke 2, 1 through 21. And, and so one of the questions I have is, what's one takeaway that we might have from this passage today? And the more I thought about it, the thing that's kind of kept kind of bubbling up, if you will, is the, is the fact that we cannot ever forget the context in which Jesus was born. I don't think it's just happenstance. I don't think it's like, well, this is the one place that was kind of available, or this just seems like, ah, maybe we should do it now. There's nothing else to do. No, that Jesus was born in the very midst of poverty, in the very midst of suffering, in the very midst of the powerless. And we can't just kind of hear this story around Christmas time every year and then go on and kind of forget that. We can't just kind of take it and say, oh, great, Jesus was born. Let's just focus on that. It seems to me that we need to never forget that the placement of Jesus' birth is absolutely critical for us because it reveals that God identifies with the poor, with the powerless, and with the suffering. But it is easy for us to forget that. I don't think it's our fault. Because the truth is that the vast majority of us, not all of us, but most of us as Christians have never felt that. Especially those of us in America. Most of us have have never felt that much powerlessness or that poverty or that suffering. For most Christians, right, over the, over, uh, uh, the last decades or even centuries, we've been oftentimes in power. We've been the majority. We've had might economically, politically, uh, uh, even communication-wise. We've had a lot of influence in this country. Someone's calling to disagree. That happens. And yet, you can also, those of us who have been around for a little while, we we can say, you know, it feels like maybe we're losing some of that power that we used to have, some of that influence. 
And of course, over the last year or two, post-COVID, we're beginning to feel that even more. In fact, there's been lots of research that's saying, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and for the very first time in the history of America, I think they said that, 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 that those of us who are connected to a religious institution is less than 50%. So now we're kind of becoming a, uh, the minority in a sense. And when you look at the generational background, uh, it does not look good, right? The older folks... Those are the ones who are coming, and the younger folks, it just keeps decreasing in dramatic fashion. And when we begin to see that and we begin to feel it, the truth is that for many of us, myself included, there are great times of anxiety, vulnerability, and then wondering, what are we going to do at this point? How are we going to make sure that Jesus' name keeps going out, that he's the way, the truth, and the life? And a lot of times we keep saying, the question that I hear many saying, which is, how do we get the power back? We got to get this back. And I completely understand. As a pastor, I will tell you, it is not enjoyable to feel like, oh my goodness, are we a part of a sinking ship here? I don't want to be the last one to turn the lights off. I want to go back to some glory days. At least it seems like a glory day. So what do we do? How do we, how do we get some of this power back? But then I'm reminded of the Christmas story. You know. Jesus could have been born in Rome. He could have been born in a palace where he had all the power that he wanted militarily, politically, economically, communication-wise. He could have done all of those things, but he chose not to be born in a majestic throne, but he chose a manger. He chose not the way of the mighty, but the way of the manger. And whenever it is that we begin to feel, and please hear me, it is very natural to begin to feel we've got to figure out a way to get back in control, to get back power. Whenever we begin to feel like that, it seems to me we always need to go back to the story of Christmas and to remember that the way Jesus more often than not chooses to work in this world is not through power, but it's through love. Not through strength, but through serving. Not through might, but through the manger. But we are constantly tempted to choose the easier way. But let me be clear. That when a church distances itself from the poor and the powerless and the suffering... It is a church that has disconnected itself from the Christmas and the Christian story. And it matters not if the Christmas Eve service is packed to the hilt or if the Christmas choir or the choir sings the most beautiful cantata or the preacher preaches a powerful message. If it is a church that is disconnected from the poor, from the suffering, and from the powerless, then it has forgotten who Jesus is and how Jesus was born. 
Now, I bring that up this morning not to suggest that we at ZPC have done this, but I bring it up to say that we have always have to be vigilant and making sure that we never do because it will always be a temptation. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of... Um, uh, the Outreach Foundation, it's a board that I, I serve on this mission organization. Uh, you might remember it, actually. I want to say one thing about it. A few years ago, we gave some money to the, to, uh, to the Presbyterian Church in Syria. People are oftentimes surprised that, A, there's a church in Syria, and, B, uh, that there are Presbyterians in Syria. There are. And so there's this uh, Presbyterian Church in Syria, and they were going to build a retreat center in a more peaceful section of Syria. I don't know how big of a section that is, but that's what they were going to do. So we gave money to that. And, and even with all all the war and some of the supply issues. I wanted you at least to see a couple pictures that there is progress that is being made. Can we see this? So this is a part of the retreat center. Uh, this was, uh, I think, within the last year, yeah, uh, that's being built. And you can see on, the, on this next slide, uh, there's this, uh, they're, you know, uh, writing in some uh, different scripture passages before they kind of uh, drywall it over, however else they're going to build this. I don't really know how construction works, but uh, that's what they're doing. So I wanted you to know that. But I was thinking about Syria because Joseph Kassab is one of the leaders and I've heard him, uh, he came to one of our meetings, and, 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 and he, he loves to talk about the fact that in the middle of the war, there was a group of people from the Outreach Foundation, a group of Christians, probably six or seven, I think, who went into Syria to, to meet with them, with, these, uh, with, uh, with the Presbyterians there. And, and Joseph, as he kind of looks at us, and as he's, he's describing this, he said that when they were there, it reminded them that they had not been forgotten. It reminded them that they were loved and that they mattered. And in the time when most of us, when we think of Syria, we just think of war and we just think of everything that's horrible and who would ever want to go in there in the very midst of that. Here was a group of Christians, Presbyterians, that doesn't matter, but might as well give us some credit for that. And they went into Syria in order to be with them. Now, when I heard this, first of all, I thought, man, these people are crazy. They kind of are. They're radical. But I was, at the exact same time, I was like, I am so glad that I am a part of a group of Christians who say, you know what, we're, we're going to actually go in because we think even more important than our own safety is that there are people there who know that they are loved by Jesus. I almost get this image of like the shepherds, right, going in and saying, hey, we care about you. God is here in the midst of all of this tragedy, and there's great tragedy. They've had churches, some of their churches blown up. I mean, all these sorts of things, and in the very midst of that, they it is. It's a group of people who said, we are going to be about the manger, not about the mighty, and we're going to come in, and we are going to be present with you. It's a part of the reason why this church is so committed to making sure, what, that we give, right? I mean, we give to places like, uh, uh, um, well, not to Syria. We gave to Syria, I suppose. But also, uh, some of us as individuals give to Uganda. I know that. We give to uh, Egypt. We give to Haiti. But we don't just give money. We actually have people who go and people who are there present. Why? Because we believe that it is important for us to go and be able to say, we are here. You are not alone. Right There's this sense of saying we're not just going to be about the mighty, we are going to be about the manger. And we're going to be with people who are suffering, with people who are oppressed, with people who are in poverty. It's a part of the reason, again, why we are committed to saying that we are going to be uh, in the Crooked Creek area, the northwest Indianapolis. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it takes us forever to get things going. Yes, there's lots of struggles. But we are committed to saying we are going to be a church that never is disconnected from the poor and the power 
powerless and the suffering. We must always go to those places where people are not in control, where they are not in power. Why? Because this is how the church began with Jesus Christ. It's part of the reason why last year when the elders met, we decided to begin the building with the food pantry. Why? Because we wanted to begin by saying we are coming alongside those who are hungry and who do not have the means. We've got to stay rooted in the manger. But I also want to say one other thing. Which is one of the more fascinating things that occurs when you say we are going to be a people of the manger. Is that when you are doing this again, almost like the shepherds wanting to go in and encourage, right, Mary, as I'm sure that they did, as they were amazed by this fact that, wow, they came in. At some point, this fascinating thing occurs. Sometimes you don't even realize it until you get back. Which is that at some point, you begin to realize that those people who you are with have actually become the shepherds. And the longer that you're with them, you begin to see not just their poverty, but we begin to see our own poverty. Our own poverty of spirit, our own poverty of values our own poverty of materialism, our own poverty of power, all of these things that we think are so critical and so important and so airtight and we love having all this. At some point, when you are there in the midst of these people to whom we think we are going to be shepherds, you realize that they are ministering to you in a remarkable way. But you only begin to discover that when you choose to let go of the desire for might and power, and you say, we are going to go and we are going to stand alongside those who suffer, those who have no power. I want you to know that I feel blessed to be a pastor of a church. I came into this church, and this was already in the DNA of this congregation to say that we are constantly going to be about the mission of the church. That does not mean we do it perfectly, but what it does mean is that we keep the manger in the middle of the room so that we trip over it at times. We Sometimes we want to kind of move it to the side and say, no, 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 we're going to take over. We're going to, we're going to do this on our own. But we keep the manger right there so that we can never forget how it was that Jesus was born. We can never think, well, that's nice that that happened 2,000 years ago, but now we know how things are done, and we're going to get the word out in a strong and mighty way. And Jesus says, no, we get the word out by serving and loving and suffering alongside the poor, the powerless, and the suffering. I'm going to close this morning, not with my own words, but I want to close with you simply listening to a recording. Pastor Stan made this recording We've watched something like this a few years ago. It's a recording of Ugandan pastors. There'll be no video. And it's just them simply singing out to God. 
Because for me, it was during that moment when I got to hear them sing where I began to realize who the actual shepherds in this story were. So let's listen to that now. Amen? Amen. 